This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello, and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome back to the Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. We're here in the Members' Lounge, uh, another bustling Wednesday, and I'm joined by Alex Davis. Hello, Alex. Hiya. And Christian Spence. Hello. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Right, we've got loads to talk about today, but before we get into that, thank you for following us on Twitter, and thank you for leaving us those iTunes reviews. They really are appreciated. Let's kick off with a change of position by the UK opposition, the Labour Party. How does, this, how does this differ to where they were pre- uh, previous to this annou- announcement? Um, but if we go back to the Labour Manifesto, um, essentially that was the first so- kind of rock-solid um, setting out of Labour's plans for, for Brexit that we had, and there, were, there was a little bit of a surprise in there because we saw a final confirmation of what everyone suspected was that the Labour Party was... Uh, essentially against continued membership of the single market and the customs union and was going a bit more down the hard Brexit route than perhaps some of the Labour voters thought they might Mm. uh, or thought they should certainly Um, and things seem to have changed a little bit and they've developed their position slightly Uh, it feels like some of Keir Starmer's influence has uh, been allowed to flourish a little bit more than it had done in uh, writing the manifesto Um, so Keir Starmer penned an article setting out their strategy for transitional arrangements um, and it differs from the Tories uh, in a few major ways. I think the first one is that Labour seem more willing for the transition period to go on for a longer period of time so the Tories are still talking about it being you know, capped at two, certainly three years Yeah, because they want it over by the next election essentially, don't they? Yeah. That's the big one for L- them. Labour seem happy for it to be more like four or five years, um, so a longer period. And then the other, the, the other big one, which is the, the really interesting part, is that Labour have said very specifically that they want us to remain members of the single market and members of a customs union with the EU uh, for that transition period. Whereas the Tories are still peddling the line that they want us outside of the single market and the customs union, but with various new arrangements in place in order to replicate both those things. Of course, the challenge there as well. Sorry, John. This Theresa May gave a speech this morning. We're speaking on Wednesday now um, around all this her visit to Japan and what the the current deals are. She held absolutely firm in that speech this morning, saying, as she said, 
in her Lancaster House speech in, uh, in January. It is not possible to remain in the single market if you leave the European Union, which of course is a line we have been constantly telling you and all of our listeners for a long time is complete and utter falsehood. I, be- I, I, believe, I believe they actually called her out on that and said, well, what about countries like Liechtenstein or Norway? And um, she said just something like, well, it, we, what we absolutely have to do is to satisfy the will of the people and ensure we leave the European Union or something. So I just completely dodged the point. Um, it's, not, it's not clear whether she's making that error on purpose or... We, we don't know. So it's a Labour position, the EFTA position? Um, I don't think it's... it's Essentially, it's, it's essentially it is, isn't it? They've not used the word, but yeah. inside, inside the uh, yeah, outside the EU, inside the single market, with some form of customs agreement, they want a customs union. It might be less, or it might just be a customs agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but essentially, yeah, that's that's very very similar to the Norway position, <laughs> which which has no customs union but does have customs facilitation agreements. Yeah. Why then? Why don't they just use the words? Why don't they just say after? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Is it, I mean, you do. Is it? Are they not aware of it? Do they, is it politically impalatable? What is I it? think there's probably some politics, and and that's you know, if we go back to kind of before the before the referendum, during the campaigns, immediately afterwards, the Norway, you know, lots and lots of people were bashing the Norway position really, really hard, and saying, oh, it's the worst possible aspect the worst of the world. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That you're outside the EU, but you have to take all of the rules, and you've got absolutely no say in any of that. You know, we've explored in podcast before again why none of those statements are true um, either but it's it is I think for us increasingly frustrating that particularly when actually the model they're suggesting albeit they're giving it a different name is basically that the, the, the model the after EA model is getting explored increasingly within the media more and more people seem to be talking about it it seems to be on the tip of everyone's tongues but it's still as yet to enter the kind of political political world it seems so it is quite frustrating I'm sure we'll see it get mentioned uh, increasingly as things move on though. yeah and it was even mentioned by one of the EU officials this week who said you know there are you know the in the time that we've got left you know t- ticking down as uh, Michel Barnier keeps telling us um, you know something like the Norway model is you know is the only thing that's realistically achievable not an official East, uh, European Union position of course but uh, <laughs> now of course one of the problems is and probably may- maybe one of the reasons words like EFTA aren't used by the Labour or the Conservatives is because it seems that everyone's stalling with the um, with the negotiations. Uh, one of the things which has come up this week is the UK's almost complete refusal to discuss the well to discuss what well, what we would say is ongoing contributions, or the EU would describe as a divorce bill. Yes. Yes. Sorry, we're both <laughs> waiting for each other. Go on, kick off, Alex. Um, um, yeah, but we're kind of repeating stuff that we've said before here. We, we, we know that the EU very early on laid out its uh, proposed sequencing for the talks and that we agreed to them, essentially, uh, and that the first three issues which, which it wanted to get off the table or at least make uh, sufficient progress on um, were the issues of the divorce bill, citizens' rights and the Irish border. Um, and we know that we've had position papers on two of those things, but one one thing which we have have very little from uh, from our government is the matter of the divorce bill, and it's a, a lot of people are suggesting, and and I, and I think it's 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 kind of true that they foresee a kind of stalemate happening here because it seems that from our position we, we don't want to talk about the divorce bill in too much detail. Or none, actually. Or, 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 or yeah. none, as far as we know. I mean, we, we yet to, we're yet to hear exactly how the third round is going. I think, I think we're due 
uh, we're recording this on Wednesday. Tomorrow's Thursday. We're due to hear something about the progress. We get the press conference tomorrow. Yeah, that's um, right. Um, but but thus far, it seems like an issue which we are doing our best to avoid. And they are constantly saying, "Well, you know, we agreed that we were talking about this." And it's, it's it is a slightly complicated one um, because a, a, a few people have made the point that we're coming at this from kind of different perspectives here because. From, from the EU side of things, they want to make sure that our outstanding contributions are paid. Um, they want the methodology at least to be agreed upon as to how we calculate this thing. But from our position, what we are more interested in is what we get out of the bill that we, that, that we pay. So it's going to be based on essentially the makeup of the transitionary arrangement and will we have to continue contribu- contributing to the EU budgets in some way. We might have to pay for whatever particular trade arrangements which we come to in the future. So from our point of view, it's, well, you know, we're happy to pay this bill in theory, but what, what are we going to get out of it? And it, it's kind of understandable why we might find it hard to talk about those things when we are yet to really discuss in depth the matters of trade or customs or any of those other things. But isn't, but isn't there politics in the sequencing alone? Because it's become clear from you know, reading about the negotiations and how the two sides want, want to negotiate, the EU want these two things done, as far as I can, I can say, i.e. the Irish border and the divorce bill, because these are the two biggest bargaining chips that the UK has. If we did them last, it would know, be significantly more difficult for the EU to negotiate. I think there's probably some aspects of that, but I think, I think probably to flesh out a bit more on Alex's side from what he just said is the two sides see this thing very, very differently. Mm. So as I said, you've got the UK that says, we understand we've got bills to settle. What do we get for settling them in the future? The EU is saying, you're walking away before we talk about the future. Settle at what you owe. Mm. And, so, and they're two very, two very philosophical different approaches. Because, and you know, let's play, let's play the, you know, I'm on the EU side for a moment. They would say, well, actually, regardless, we need to, at the moment, to assume that there is no future relationship. The, the UK has voluntarily chosen to walk away from the European Union. That is a statement of, of fact and of law that will happen within the next two years. So there are bills to be settled. You know, if you've, bought, if you've been in a commercial relationship with someone for a number of years and you're saying, I want to end that relationship, debts are due. No matter what things you might want to go and buy off that company in five years' time, there are, there are amounts due today, and that, I think, is what the EU wants to see settled. How do we calculate them? It's not going to be an easy job. It's going to be incredibly complex. Uh, the EU has spawned you know, dozens and dozens of subsidiary organisations and agencies over the past few years. That, pensions, ongoing commitments into capital funds, which will still be paying out in 10 years' time, all of that needs wiping through. The EU wants to say, what is the arrangement for us settling all of that? And then we move on. We're almost trying to take it like a bargaining position, mm-hmm. saying, "Well, look, well, we, you know, of course we're prepared to settle the bills, but what you might give us in five or ten years' time determines how much we pay today." Mm. So we're trying to buy access. What the EU is saying is, "No, no, the buying of access that will come later. That comes later when we decide. If we decide, mm-hmm. there is preferential access. But for now, there are debts we pay. So we're just approaching this from two totally different angles. And I think, as Alex said, I think this could be the first big." Head road, and my, my my personal concern in this is is one that I've kind of talked about before. Is I think the Brexiteers continually underestimate that the EU has the upper hand in all this. It is the body that we are walking away from. It is the big institution with the global powers that has you know it can you know both sides will be damaged immeasurably 
by no deal and walking away. But the damage to the EU will be a bloody bad bruise. The damage to us is you break both of our legs. You know, and that's kind of the challenge in all of this. So, you know, and the EU has its own integrity that it has. In, I don't mean moral integrity. Yeah. You know, the, the actual political and economic nature of the EU. It, not only does it have to protect it, or not only does it want to protect it, of course, and keep you know the union, the single market, all of those pillars together. It does, of course, have some international obligations which it also has to maintain. So the clarity of the customs union, its hard external borders, all of these things are defined in international law, so they're not easily pulled around. Um, and you've got the UK still trying to work out, of course, why it's doing what it's doing. It clearly still doesn't know actually what it wants out of having done all of this. Um, negotiating against an institution which says, we know what we are, we know what we want to be, these are the things we want, bring them to us. Uh, and that's going to be quite an impasse, I think. So let's just say both teams uh, have met in negotiations and they can't work out where this is going. The UK are saying, we want something for our money, and the EU say, no, no, that's our money, you're going to have to give it us, and then we'll, and then we'll decide about that later. As, what do they do? Just sit on their hands for the, for the next three, three days? It's, it's a good question, actually. I, 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 mean, I, I don't know. Um, if, if things continue as, as they are now and at the pace that they are now, at some point we're going to come to a Someone's got a blink first. Yeah, I think, yes, I mean, essentially. So, the EU, so again, the EU's position here, of course, is the next big deadline in the diaries is the end of October. There's a meeting of the, of the European Council, the, the 27 members of heads of state, because we know we won't be in that uh, this time round. And the whole idea of the timing that we've been working to over summer is that the, the objective was that the EU27 will be able to ratify at that point that sufficient progress has been made. In, ident- in ticking off these these, prim- these primary three objectives, Northern Irish border, citizens' rights, divorce bill, that we then start to talk about future relationships. There's going to be some serious politics in, th- in that meeting. There is, yeah, absolutely. Because if progress hasn't been made, the EU27 essentially needs to decide what it wants to do. Mm. Um, now, I think this is, this is potentially where you might see some give on the EU side. It's an unknown. I've no idea. Um, now, of course... The question now is who holds the upper hand in those decision-making? Because, of course, if the EU27 turns around and says, we've not seen any progress, therefore no further talks, what then? Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating um, one. It, you know, it's not clear. And certainly, of course, every time we overrun that, because the next major council meeting, I don't think, is until December after that one. So what you're saying is potentially if you then get it, even if the week after the council, we all agree the three bits, you know, these three uh, main bits in before. So even if that's done in the first week in November, it will still then be January mm-hmm. before the council has ratified and said we are now ready to move on. Which is a long, which is a long time. When which is a long time years. to wait when you are real. The, you know, the, you know, the Michelle Barnier. The clock really is ticking. You know, the the guidelines at the moment are October next year. So in about fourteen months is probably the latest you dare push to allow whatever the deal is decided to get ratified throughout the rest of the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a bit that's a well it's not necessarily a big ass because there are there are things off the shelf which we keep, keep talking about which could help to ease some of that process and I wonder if it's that off the shelf option which allows particularly the British side to be such uh, so almost so intransigent about the whole thing that's a good question actually one I hadn't thought about are they aware after there do they think they can just pluck it from thin air I mean the question is well Alex I'll let you, let you go I'll say is, don't forget, is, we've always said after is easier We've not said the after option is easy. Mm. 
you know, it is still a complex job. There are still huge amounts of treaties and negotiations to go through. Always said it is easier. It's something that you could probably do in five years rather than ten. But it's all. Well, it's not I mean, easy. my response to that would be, let's hope so. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I say that because at some point we're going to come to crunch time and either side's going to have to set, interject and say, hold on, you know, we're hurtling towards this deadline and we're not, neither of us are going to be ready. Um, and then the problem with the current strategy that, that the Conservatives are pursuing is that if we do end up in a kind of deadlock position, we end up in a deadlock position kind of still in the EU is, is, is the issue. Whereas... Well, we, we can't still be in the EU, can we? Well, I mean, I, I mean I'm assuming now that, that no side will allow the no deal, we break away with no deal whatsoever, thing to happen. In, in, in which case, the, the Tory strategy will end up with a, a prolonged membership whilst we sort things out. Whereas, we, you can go back to contrast that with now what Labour are proposing, which is more along the lines of, let's get ourselves out based on the technicality of being an EU member or not. Keep everything else the same. So then the deadlock happens whilst we're not an EU member anymore, if you know what I mean. Mm. So it's, it's do, you, do you go down the route of buy, buying ourselves time as a prolonged EU member whilst we, we, whilst we negotiate with them? Or do you get us, get us technically outside the EU, um, but still in the single market and the customs union, and sort those things, things on late, later on? And if we do, cr- do crash out in October, the Northern Ireland issue becomes enormous. Yeah, I, mean, oh, yeah, I mean, just unbe- I mean, that's what we said. We've always said the cra- the crash out is so unbelievably unlikely, yeah, yeah. because it, it's disastrous on both sides. I mean, it's, I say, it's, it's more disastrous, but it's disastrous on both sides. There's just no question of that. Um, but it's interesting just talking that through, Alex. You get the point. I'm just going through. Actually, the EU, of course, has a really strong negotiating position, which we've not really explored yet. Which is, if they hold firm in October and say we've not seen enough progress, go away and talk. And then you come back in December and they say, we've not seen enough progress. The EU's absolute Trump political card, when you get to, you know, six months from the Brexit day, is say, well, look, stay then. Oh, yeah. The way to solve the problem, the way, you know, the U27 have said, you know, if you want to withdraw, if you want to withdraw your Article 50 letter, we'll take it tomorrow and stop the whole process. Now, that's a very, that's a very now, that, interesting point, that. That, of course, is an unbelievably powerful political tool against... The concern against the UK government, yeah. because what you are, because essentially the option that is then absolutely on the table is you are out with nothing, or you stay. Because I guess and that's your and Mrs May, that's your call. Which do you want to take? Yes. Knowing that one of those is one of those is economically disastrous, and one is politically disastrous. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because mm. now we're in this contentious environment. You would assume that the EU's goal is to get the best deal from Britain. Actually, the EU's goal is to maintain the EU. The EU. It'd rather have twenty-eight members than twenty-seven. It would. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I certainly think that if things continue as, as as they are, at some point the EU will kind of step in to try and save us and will offer us a hand. And it it could say, for example, it could say, you know what? Let's pursue the Norway option if you really want to leave and you really want to do this. The only way which we're going to be able to do it is Norway. So take that, or remain a full member. Um, in which case, you leave based on WTO rules, WTO rules, and that's entirely your decision to, to do that. What would have to happen in the UK? I mean, it'd have to go to a second referendum. I mean, it would certainly be if it, if it didn't go to a referendum, it would be going to days of debates in the House with colossal media coverage. Uh-huh. I mean, of, of what does the UK now want to do and this is the challenge this was always the challenge of triggering Article 50 without having gone through the work the UK is now desperately doing to get up to speed 
because um, again we come back to you know the matter of international law and the wording of article 50 you send your you send in your letter and if nothing happens all the treaties cease to apply and you leave we we set that in train hours this is the bit yeah, this is the um, bit that the eu can always end up sounding like utter bastards about but is a sort of correct it is an absolutely you know clinical correct concept of law you said you are get, you triggered a statement which says you're leaving in two years, and if you've not got a deal, you're outside the treaties. You knew that was what you were triggering. I th- I so if you've not if you've not now presented the stuff we asked to present to, to sort that out, that's your problem. I think I think this is maybe why the change of position for Labour is perhaps a little bit smarter than people think, because hmm. if you you know you try and be optimistic about this and you think that Brexit's still going to happen and you know the fallback on WTO or we remain part of the EU are the two worst outcomes here which I think maybe a lot maybe some people would agree with um, but if, if we're going to progress and actually try and do this thing the two options are we risk falling out without a deal or we prolong our membership until which point we're ready to leave or we get ourselves out technically um, but remain part of the single market and the customs union and now now that Labour are pushing that position for the transition the interesting question becomes can they threaten the government with a, a majority in parliament in support of that transition yes, over this, the Tories, this, this over the Tories one yeah. so if it comes down to well we're going to run the risk of crashing out or the EU are going to come step in and say well you know what you're not ready so you're going to remain or we do the Tory strategy which is prolonging your membership until we sort things out or the Labour option which is let's get ourselves out as soon as we can. So what would be the process of them doing that? Would that almost like be to make an amendment du- during a bill? Well, essentially, the final deal, if you remember back in the Lancaster House speech, Theresa May, one of the 12 points was that whatever the final deal is, they will come back and there will be a vote. There will be a vote in the House on what that was. That's always the case, because it's a, it's a change to treaty, and it would have had, whatever mm. the deal was, we're always going to come back. So the House is going to face a vote. Parliament is going to face a vote, whatever happens, between now and then, about what it is it wants to do. Even, even if all they do is come back and say, you know, this is the deal we have negotiated, do you want to take it or not? That was always the case. The one we've always said is, this is not a normal negotiation because of the way Article 50 is worded. So, Because you, you're not saying, if you don't like this deal, everything stays as it is today. What you're saying is, if you don't like that deal, you're out with nothing. The, the, kind of the status quo isn't on the table. It is in the sense that government can go and beg to the EU and say, will you please let us stay? Yes. Uh, now that, of course, will be the end of Theresa May's career. Well, it will be the end of a Conservative government for, it's, it's, for a decade or more. Theresa May's career looks like it's got about four and a half more years to go, maximum. It, it can't possibly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's maximum. It's what yeah. I've said before. So is that I, I feel that like the way that the Conservatives have approached this is, has made it almost impossible for them to win. Yeah. And 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 the the move that Labour have just made has potentially brought that to the forefront because. What could be happening is we get we get to crunch time in March 2019, and, and the Conservatives have got nowhere with their approach, and and then apparently you know we might have parliamentary votes on on how we progress from there, and one of the options on the table might be well let's pursue Labour strategy instead. Yeah, and then overnight, I mean, it just if this does come to fruition, and this is caused a huge thought experiment, but if it does, the EU will clip the wings of its most awkward um, uh, awkward member. I mean, that's it. I mean, if if we ended up staying in, what power or political credibility does the UK have within the EU? Zero. Um, you know, it's any time in those negotiations, you're the person who tried to leave and couldn't. Yeah, every, you know, every, everyone else will fall back in back into line. Their second biggest economy. It is it, just an, a colossal win. 
Uh, and all of this, of course, is, you know, I think the, you know, the Tory policy so far has confused all of this by desperately trying to say we're leaving in March 2019, but basically we want the situation to be identical. Yeah. We want the Single Market Act as, as it is today. We want customs cooperation as it is today. We want access to third country free trade agreements as it is today. You're left with this, you know, so like the Conservative position always been we want to leave, but keep everything as it is. But In which case, well, actually, stay is the easiest way of doing all of that. But if you want to be outside the EU, there are ways to get close to that. And yeah. Labour have kind of started to fall into yeah. that position. The Conservatives seem to have, on purpose, chosen absolutely the most difficult option yeah. available in order to get to essentially the same place that we're in now, just technically outside the, the European Union. Um, which is why I, I, I think that they've perhaps not played this very well and they've put themselves in a position where they... they won't come out looking good whatever happens well just whilst we're talking about um, about negotiating tactics then there's a couple of points I'd like to hear your views on um, one was a, um, a comment I read today uh, regarding the EU strategy which is they've identified it to be similar to how they negotiated with Greece which was they would take control of, of the negotiations but ultimately they can they can abdicate responsibility because you know, as we've seen with same with, uh, with Task Force ta- 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 Task Force Fifty, they are completely Im- c- completely inflexible. Um, and the other thing I wanted to uh, get your opinion on is how much are the UK's representatives um, held back because they're obviously in, uh, negotiating against an, uh, Task Force Fifty, but also they've got to put up, put. Um, Put up a good fight against the UK, the UK opposition too. Whereas Task Force Fifty and the European Union have no such political opposition. I think that's an interesting one. Um, I mean, I think the challenge when you talk about actually negotiating with the UK opposition, I think that's kind of half the problem. And many mm. other media commentators have talked about this before. Is all of the <coughs> excuse me, all of the UK's kind of position paperwork it's been doing since the Article Fifty letter feels like. The only real people that, you know, if we say Theresa May and the, you know, the core of her government who are leading on this now, David Davis, Liam Fox, their primary objective at the moment appears to be to negotiate with the Conservative cabinet, the wider Conservative backbenches, the opposition, the UK media. At no point do they, they appear to have been totally focused on negotiating with the people they actually need to be negotiating yes. with. Um, so this fact that we don't really know what our government's position is, and this is what the EU is saying, now, essentially, this was this was Jean Paul uh, Juncker's uh, Jean Paul Juncker's comment earlier this week. Is actually, you know, you've given them these position papers, but they don't tell us what you want. Mm. They say, well, you know, you kind of want nice stuff. We want customs to be easy. We want citizens' rights to have some, but not all. It's like, well, how can we negotiate back against you? There is no position. Yeah, because I guess the difficulty is, for instance, if they said we want unfettered free trade with the rest of the world. Uh, so on and so forth. There could easily be a, a kickback from the opposition saying, well, actually, we don't want unfettered free trade because it's going to hurt jobs in X, Y, Z sector. Yeah, that's it. Because the thing is, if you're putting forward concrete proposals, you can at least respond to them. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I think, of course, that is why the, you know, particularly the Northern Ireland border question is being, is so fudged in the UK paper where they say, well, you know, it's hard and here's a couple of options and, you know, we don't know. Is the problem is what they want to say is, we would like to be outside of the. We want to be outside the single market. We want to be in perhaps some form of customs cooperation agreement with you, maybe even a customs union. But we want absolutely, completely unfettered travel for everything across that border. If you state that in black and white, the EU can give a response in black and white. 
and we know what that is. Yeah, that will be outside the single market of the customs union. That is not possible. Go away. Because there is no the, equivalent opposition for the. So they the no exactly that's it. And the problem is, of course, is the UK government will know that. So it's desperately trying to not ask the question to which it knows it's going to get a no. Yeah. Because actually, the problem is that I mean, I think you know, if that was spelt at some point, this will have to be spelt out in black and white. If that's spelt out in black and white, it's kind of game over. It's it, once, once it's utterly clear to all members of the public and parliament and press that what the UK government is actually asking for simply is not achievable. It's then it's what do you do? It's why I think it would have been beneficial for everyone if this was handled in a, by a cross-party group. Yes, I agree with that. Because I think the Conservatives maybe thought, you know what, we're going to take this chance to you know, reinvigorate the party and we're going to take control of Brexit and we're going to deliver what the people want. And no, at the time, some of us realised how difficult that, that would be. Um, but it seems increasingly that... I think we mentioned that in like episode five. Yes, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Seems, it seems increasingly that the Tories have developed all these negotiating red lines and blah, blah, blah based on what it, it felt like people voted for. And increasingly it seems like maybe people didn't vote for the things that they actually thought they were voting for. The, pu- the public's opinion seems to be changing on lots of this stuff, and the, Tory- the Tories' policy isn't. Um, it's giving Labour every opportunity to come in, to come in and, and, and offer slightly different things in order to make them look bad. Not to put you on the rack here, Alex, but do we know what the public opinion changes are? I mean, I would assume that... Or I thought the public opinion is actually more in favour of Brexit now it's been decided we must do it I, I, I think that yeah. public opinion has shifted in terms of people, people are happy for Brexit to happen but I think as we learn more and more about how difficult it is potentially uh, opinions f- for things like EFTA EEA uh, are potentially on the rise um, I certainly think lots of kind of people who are, may, may have been hard Brexiteers in the early stages have, have maybe softened things up slightly now yeah there was a poll earlier this week which says for the first time now since the referendum there is a larger share of the population possibly even a majority of the population who who now who do not think any longer that a trade-off in jobs against leaving the against leaving the EU is worth it. Mm. So there's, I think you said there's still this kind of concept mm-hmm. that the you know the, you know you push this to a democratic mandate, you've got it. It's it's very very hard to row back from. It can be rowed back from all the rest of it. You know we, we know it's not legally binding, etc. etc. We are where we are politically, but the as people start to explore the trade-offs in all of this, then opinion starts to move. If you ask me, do you want to be in or out of the EU? You get a binary choice. Do you want to have uncontrolled migration or controlled migration? You get binary choice. Strong economic growth, non-strong economic growth, ability to trade easily. All of those things are binaries, but the problem is none of those things are individual questions. There is one question that contains all of those things. So do you want to be outside the EU if that means weaker jobs, less growth, difficulty in trade, potential bit of a rock recession as you come out? It appears that the public opinion is going. Well, I am so it, taking all this into account. I'm now no longer quite so sure. We should. We, the referendum should have been a, ser- a series of questions online with radial buttons, which was fed into an algorithm to get the <laughs> yeah. shape. And that's position. the point. That's the point. It's the thing we talked about, wasn't it? You know, the referendum was easy because it's a binary choice, in or out. Yeah. The problem is the actual practicalities are. You know, 165 countries in trade agreements, yeah. millions of multilateral agreements, 50 odd different policy areas millions of possible spin-off variables. That's the reality which you now have to deal with. And you can't answer those questions with, well, X percent said remain, X percent said leave. That doesn't get you anywhere. 
Uh, now, we have got a, a situation at the moment where our Prime Minister is currently in Japan, allegedly talking about trade deals. Um, before we go on to that, then, is there anything that you want to want to round up this bit with? Any um, Anything which has come, come to your attention? Well, I guess, I mean, trade deals is one, because we've seen a few comments in the press this week now talking about the, you know, the UK's desire to maintain access to all of the free trade agreements and trade facilitation agreements it currently has access to um, through the EU, that they see that as a priority before going ahead for and trying to find new trade deals. For us, that's excellent. That's one of our core position statements uh, for the past year now. You know, look, protect what you already have before you go out there trying to get trying to get anything new. And it's interesting, kind of watching the commentary on this now, as we as we see sort of the, the lawyers starting to get involved and give their view. Is it appears the UK government's position has broadly been this is actually relatively straightforward. This is just a technical change. Um, so don't forget, the, the EU has trade agreements with 52, 53 mm-hmm. countries um, around the world. It also has trade facilitation agreements with another 160. Um, how do we make sure the UK still can utilise those? Uh, and the line has been, actually, we just it's a technical issue, it's a cut and paste, it's how you rewrite stuff. But increasingly the trade lawyers are coming in saying, no, it's not, it's not anywhere near so simple. You can't just take the, you can't just take the, free tra- the trade facilitation agreements between the US and the EU, split the EU up into UK and US, and they just continue. Mm. Um, because actually those agreements were thrashed out from, the, from both sides conceding ground on what they could bring to the table. Um, and of course the EU will, bring, will still have most of what it has on the table, Admittedly, depending, I mean, with America certainly will be interesting because the UK is an important part of the EU to the US, particularly through services. Um, but with other countries around the world, there was, you know, they will still have most of their leverage rights. I think the challenge for the UK, and we've had this one with, you can talk a bit more about spotty lemons uh, yes. in a minute, is, <laughs> is essentially the leverage the UK has with some of those third countries is going to be really small. Yeah, so um, you just mentioned spotty lemons there, and we'll get into spotty lemons in just a second, but I actually think we should have a feature on this podcast every week where we find an unusual food and then <laughs> dissect, the, tra- dissect the, the trade implications. Yeah. We've had chlorinated chicken. What can, what can you tell me about spotty lemons? This was uh, just a, a, a guy, a lawyer, I think, uh, Marcus LaRue on, on Twitter, um, making the point about this whole, we can just rewrite essentially all the existing trade deals that the EU's already negotiated, um, keep everything exactly the same. And, and we, we, we've mentioned this before, but this is just now we have a, a kind of nice specific example. Um, we've mentioned before that the problem with that view is that when the EU negotiated all these trade deals, they were negotiating as a 28-country block, and the characteristics and wants and needs of all those 28 were taken into account, both by the EU and by the country that they, they were negotiating with. But from by us leaving the EU and trying to negotiate a trade deal just as Britain, um, those characteristics are completely changed. And so the idea that the trade deal could just be rewritten as it is um, is very, very unlikely to happen. And, and the specific example that was given, um, like chlorinated chicken that we spoke about a, a, few, a few weeks ago, was uh, South Africa and spotty lemons. Or, or, and I, I'm pretty sure they come from the rest of Africa as well. Um, so it's essentially lemons which have, have not been treated quite so rigorously as we might treat them in terms of getting rid of, rid of fungal infections. Um, so this was the example given. So when the EU negotiated its uh, trade deal with South Africa... The EU was very tough on the import of these spotty lemons because across the EU there are lots of lemon farmers and they would have been undercut by people in Africa trying to sell us spotty lemons. Because they're not treating their lemons. Blah, 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 blah. 
Um, but of course, if then you're going to try and negotiate or re- renegotiate that exact same trade deal with South Africa, but it's just Britain, well, we don't sell lemons here. And so it would be completely right for South Africa to demand completely different um, concessions based on, based on their lemon trade. So the idea that we can very easily just take all these trade agreements and rewrite them is, is difficult because uh, the characteristics of one party have changed drastically. Yeah, because it's all about what can... You, essentially, trade deals is about, yeah. from both sides, what can each side bring to the table? Mm-hmm. We can offer you market access to this in return for you offering us market access for, for Y. And of course, that's it for some of those countries. The UK, the UK is more powerful in some of those, you know, in terms of the services side, in terms of high-value manufacturing. The UK has colossal influence in global trade deals. But in all this other stuff, actually, when it comes to particularly farming, you know, we were, you know, we've heavily, heavily relied on what Southern Europe and the, you know, the hotter climates can do in terms of those food. Because it doesn't, even, the lemons don't even have to be spotty, as mm-hmm. it were. The point is, South Africa can produce high-quality lemons cheaper than Spain can produce high-quality lemons. Yeah. Take Spain out of the trade deal, and we have nothing to counter South Africa with. And so now replicate this across set 164 countries with trade facilitation agreements, um, and that is hard on its own. I think the other bit that's come through the, some of the nice commentary this week is the political leverage. So trade deals are all about we want this, we want to get it access to your market for our goods. How can we exert pressure on you to allow us to come in? What have you got? Of course, the problem is the UK. You know, at no point in history, and at no point, you know, in the next you know, foreseeable decades, is any other are other countries ever going to have the amount of political leverage they have. Yeah, it's the a UK. golden opportunity. You know, the the rest of the world knows the UK is now essentially going cap in hand, saying we need trade deals. Mm. Um, because if Liam Fox hasn't got trade deals to dangle in front of the public by the election of 2022, <laughs> it's game <laughs> over. Because why have you done all of this? Uh, so that's really important for him. But actually, all of why would you, as as South Africa with your lemons, as Brazil or Argentina with your beef, as New Zealand with your lamb? This is a huge opportunity to say. Actually, we want more. We don't want the state. If you want the same access to our lamb, our beef, we want more from you because you're not giving us anything back that France used to give us or the Netherlands used to give us. We want something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what? You know, they'd be foolish, in fact, to sign off the trade deals as they are because it'll be a loss for the th- a net loss for the third country. Yeah, and I'll perhaps make a wider point here about some, sometimes the way that people argue against these these things kind of frustrates me, and I've, I've seen one today. Um, and I really don't like the term Rumona or Rumonas, and I try not to use it as much as I can, but my God, there are some people who are trying to leg- legitimise that term. Yeah. Um, so people on Twitter complaining about the fact that the government are, are even trying to replicate these trade deals. Yeah. Um, so people, people are not complaining about the way in which they might have got themselves into this scenario or the way in which they might want to go about doing that or the problems with doing that. People are on Twitter saying, well, if we're just going to replicate... Th- these are people who voted Remain. Some anti-Brexit MPs have been doing it as well, saying, well, if we're just going to replicate all these current trade deals, then why are we even doing this? It's like you're picking the wrong fight there because no one should be complaining about the fact that we want to replicate these current trade deals. You might be able to complain about you know, the government strategy or, or the problems with, with doing it, but the fact that they want to replicate those is a good thing and everyone should agree on that. And this yes. is almost like a... This is almost... A, not understanding, as we've said before, it's the process, not not the event. I mean, mm-hmm. I do actually think the replication of all the trade deals needs to happen before we can change them. Yeah, exactly. and that's the exactly. point. It's maintaining the status quo. The goal is to get out. The goal is, I mean, in many ways, that's it. The the, the conservatives' route 
get out whilst remaining as close to the status quo as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. So the goal, the goal of doing that yeah. is correct. The route by which they are trying to do that is insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, the 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 labour is a better route to a less satisfactory goal. Yeah. But we all keep missing after. You know, maintain the status, <laughs> get out, keep access to everything you've got, and then work out. It's not about yes. I mean, Alex has talked about this since podcast number one. It's yeah. It's not a. It's not an event. It's a process. Fantastic. Well, next week we'll talk about musical fish, uh, and we'll also um, come, will we? <laughs> yeah. Well, we've done clock chronicle chicken and uh, lemon, so why not? Fair enough. Um, and we'll also have some news from round three of the negotiations. Um, we don't need to talk about two is a major pan, do we? That's not I don't, no. I mean, I think it's kind of encompassing what we talked yeah. about. You know, um, it's lovely. It's a lovely concept, but the UK is five or ten years away from being ready the, to start to tackle any. I think the kickback that we've heard from Japan, or from what I've read, anyway. Is exactly what we would have expected in that. They, they want they want the goalposts set before they they're going to push on yeah. with negotiating trade deals with the EU, and they're going to wait to see what happens between us and then before they'll progress with us. Seems to be what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Right. Well, in that case, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for following us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Beardmore. You can find uh, you gentlemen at I'm at GMCC underscore Alex and at GMCC underscore Christian. So until next week, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.